very proud. Placement is flying out this morning. <laughs> <laughs> this be my sister-in-law and my brother. Right. I, I've heard there's a rotation developing that's um, you have to buy into. I. I thought I'd start, what, let's see, there's, here in Birmingham, some of the bigger churches, um, oh, Highlands, that's the one I was trying to think of. Uh, you know, the hot thing at Highlands, which is, is arguably a mega congregation now here in Birmingham, several thousand members, um, surpassing our own cathedral with 4,000 um, there beyond that. Um, one of the hot things going on there now is they are establishing satellite churches and if you talk to one of the members, they'll come to you and say, wow, this is this new idea we've got. We're establishing these satellite churches, you mm -hmm. see. And they're all kind of focused on our central church. And our central pastor is their pastor too, but they're people that lead worship. And it, we're just, wow. And I say to them, yeah, it is great. It does seem to be the way God wants his church organized. In fact... We thought it was so great, we did it 2,000 years ago. <laughs> um, the truth is, everywhere the church goes, it seems finally to organize itself into a structure that looks something like a diocese. Now, it can have all kinds of different um, versions and feelings and particular structures and relationships, but even the Baptists who pride themselves on a theology that says each congregation is a church unto itself, even the Baptists over time have developed districts and conventions and central, it just seems to go that way, arguably as a move of the spirit, that the way God wants God's church to be organized is in a form that roughly resembles the diocese. Now, one of the things you won't see on the slide that I tend to do at Carpenter House is that I'm sort of our resident expert, as it were, on the emergent church. And as that, I'm very sensitive to the fact that <coughs> traditional ideas about exactly what a diocese is may well change and need to be reinterpreted. And we're sensitive to those things. But the truth is the church tends to organize itself in this fashion where it's most effective. And that is with some centralizing, um, what would we want to call it, um, entity maybe. Um, it may not be an office. Um, and usually that's centered around a person. Um, that person we tend to call the bishop. Um, and... Uh, it tends to evolve into satellite churches that find some central unity and, and reason for existence and guidance from their connection with that central office, and yet also operate with a great deal of autonomy. And that basically is what a diocese is. Um, and that's what a diocesan office is. Now, they can get terribly encrusted with old ideas, and they can get terribly overburdened with staff or with um, buildings that are bigger than are needed and all sorts of things like that. But still, the basic idea of one centralizing entity around which satellite churches function and all together they form one church seems to be, I think, arguably a central element in God's organization of God's church. We often forget it in the Episcopal Church, but you are a member of the diocese as well as being a member of your satellite congregation, which is Holy Apostles. Now, I would guess, not being a member of Highlands, that probably you function with a great deal more autonomy than the satellite churches that Highlands actually have. My understanding is that on Sunday morning, the, the, the the sermon from the main church is broadcast into their satellite churches. Um, although Bishop Sloan's a pretty good preacher, we don't, we don't inflict uh, a steady diet of Bishop Sloan on you. You get to hear some other folks, which, which we think is actually a kind of diversity that feeds the church. But this basic structure seems to be kind of the way we, can, we, we find it best to operate. So... Um, I have the happy uh, job of um, being the staff officer for finance and administration. Um, and I'm going to have to I'm going to have to move the veil back for a second because I realized 
just now that I got my slides out of order. All right, we're back on track. Um, just to let you know a little bit about me, although I've been kicking around for a while, I'm actually from Columbus, Georgia, and I'm going to try not to read, but I may repeat some of the information, but I want to stand here and say I was called by. Um, I'm on my third diocesan, which makes me pretty unique among diocesan administrators. Usually we tend to change as diocesans change, as the bishop changes. But I'm kind of lucky in that Bishop Miller called me, but it was in his last year before Bishop Parsley took over. Bishop Parsley had already been elected, so Bishop Parsley had a lot to do with calling me into this position. I served with Bishop Parsley, did manage to survive the transition to Bishop Sloan. I'm really in a good position now because Bishop Sloan is not as financially oriented as Bishop Parsley was, so he's a lot more dependent on me. <laughs> also scary, though, frankly. Uh, before, I had Bishop Parsley looking over my shoulder pretty closely, and I don't have that now, and I'm conscious of that. One of the things uh, that I've discovered, too, I've, I've been ordained 34 years in my job, 16 years. I was in a Department of Finance meeting recently, and somebody said, well, Rob, if you say so, that, and I thought, oh, that's scary. <laughs> um, that is really scary. And, and, and it is a natural thing, but I need to be sensitive to that, and in fact, we are, that you don't want to become the institution. You want to serve the institution, but you don't want to become it, and so... <laughs> One of the things I'm doing now as I move into uh, my 16th and 17th years of the job is to make sure that I'm paying attention to the structures and that people are involved in the decision-making process in an appropriate way. Because there's a tendency now to say, well, you know, you, you know you've been, you, yes, but. Um, so that's kind of an issue for us right now is to make sure things continue to operate as they have in the past and done so well. We have wonderful people that serve on, on what we call departments, which are the sort of boards or committees that, that guide a lot of our work. Um, the, the diocese itself is governed by the diocesan council, which is like a vestry for the diocese, and these departments feed into that council. The council is also the board for the corporation. We are an Alabama nonprofit corporation incorporated in 1864. I love it when I get credit checks from companies and they say, how long have you been in business? Well, I don't know how long you've been in business. I've been in business for over 100 years. Um, incorporated in 1864. Interestingly enough, the charter of the diocese says that the intent was to incorporate the diocese and the congregations thereof. So arguably, we are all one corporation. Uh, operating as the Episcopal Church in the Diocese of Alabama. Council serves as our board of directors. Uh, so that's kind of an overview, and I serve as, as we changed our titles recently. We used to be deputy for finance administration. We noticed in the larger church that people sometimes would say, well, who, who's, who's the director of finance if you're the deputy? So we, you know, and then we also had characters like Bill King who would show up occasionally with a big badge on <laughs> the deputy for our clergy department. So, um, so we changed the staff officer of finance. I, I really regret that now because it takes forever to write when you're signing But that's the title. And that's a little bit about me. I've been kicking around for a long time. Uh, the one thing to say from that is for about seven years, I was bivocational. I was in business with my brother in Columbus, Georgia, who owns a small chain of restaurants called Country's Barbecue, and I worked in his corporate office. And I did a lot of the things for him that I do now. I was the liaison between attorneys and accountants in the central office while he was leaning on his coat box, taking care of the customers. I was kind of doing the behind-the-scenes sort of stuff, very much what I do now, very similar sort of thing. The only difference is, is that for four years, I was the managing partner of a different kind of restaurant that we did, a French, classic French, under the guidance of Escoffier. Uh, in Columbus, Georgia, it was uh, uh, selected for two years running as one of the top ten restaurants in Georgia. Um, very aggressive, classic French. Um, but we couldn't make it make money, so we, <laughs> we quit. Uh, he stuck with the barbecue, and I decided it was time to get back into full-time ministry. Um, one of the odd things that I do that really doesn't come under the title, or you wouldn't suspect it, is that I'm the intake officer for the diocese. Now, if you're an attorney, you may recognize that term if you're not. What do you mean, intake? 
Well, it means in some ways I'm, I'm sort of the good news, bad news guy. Uh, I'm the guy that any complaint in the diocese regarding the conduct of a cleric comes to. <coughs> um, if you call the bishop and say, um, so-and-so, I, I think he stole money, or I think he did something else serious, or he's, that complaint is going to come to me even if it goes first to the bishop. Under our new disciplinary canons in the church, um, everything comes to the intake officer first. Um, and part of this is a response to some of the cover-up, frankly, that we saw in the Roman church, where bishops would handle things without anyone else knowing anything was being handled. So now it's a little more uh, open. Um, it provides for some of the same resolution. I can go back to the bishop and say, yes, there's been a, you know, something has happened. This is what I suggest, that you work it out with the cleric and come to some agreement about discipline. We can still do that sort of thing. It doesn't have to be a court process. Um, but I'm the guy who receives all those complaints, who conducts an initial investigation, um, and who makes some recommendation to what's called the reference panel, which is the bishop, me, and the president of the disciplinary panel. And we make some determination about how things would be resolved. Or if, if we can't get them resolved at that level, there are two or three other steps um, through which some resolution is reached. Um, so that's one thing, one thing I'm doing, um, which is fairly new. I've been doing that for a year now. Um, and I, I actually, it's been, when I said yes to it, I thought, oh, well, none, none of this stuff ever happens. Well, actually it does, it turns out. Um, but with the bishop handling it before, we just didn't know it, frankly, uh, even though it was well handled. Um, so I was a bit surprised that there are some issues. But this is an important part of what the diocese does. If you were ever really in trouble with a cleric, you had a serious problem. Can you imagine the stress on a congregation to deal with that by themselves? In the most recent incident, the parish, after struggling to get some information that happened to be an accounting issue, came to us and said, we, we need some help. We can't resolve this. We're at a stalemate. And so we were able to go in and, and, and do the things that needed to be done to determine if something was wrong and then able to um, take appropriate steps with that particular cleric to see that the issue was resolved. Tough on a congregation to do on their own if you were out there all alone. So this is one of the things we do for you. So that's the intake officer. Um, I'm just getting over the flu, so... Um, one of the broad areas that I deal with is risk management. And all of this, a lot of this, is not only for Carpenter House, which is the, the diocesan office, um, but also involves the parishes as well. Almost everything I do reaches out into the parishes. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> While they're getting set on, I'm going to make a, a pitch. Um, two things I love to talk about and to come back and talk about are science and theology and theories of atonement. So if you're ever looking for a Sunday school class on a Wednesday night program, uh, I'm happy to do that. I love to run my mouth about theories of atonement. Um, so, risk management is one of the things I do. Very important in congregations and very important in the diocese. You know, the idea is that you manage as many risks as you can and then you insure the rest. If you think about it, none of us can really afford to insure all of our risks. And ministry is inherently risk. Uh, <laughs> um, and a lot of people sometimes when I talk about this will say, well, what, do you mean by your policies to take all the risk out? No, I can't. And I don't mean to do that, but I do mean to push us to manage our risk as best as we can so that we can afford to insure those that we can't manage. And one of the, the helpful things we have in this process is that the Episcopal Church has a captive insurance company. We own our own insurance company. It's called Church Insurance Company. It's owned by the Church Pension Fund, and it serves just Episcopal parishes. 
and it's known as a captive insurance company. Those sorts of things used to have to be overseas, but now uh, Vermont sort of got keyed into this, changed their state laws so that captive companies can be placed in Vermont. So it's Church Insurance Company of Vermont. It's owned by the Church Pension Fund. It is a captive insurance company, and it insures about 80% of the Episcopal parishes across the nation and does a pretty good job. It's not always the cheapest, but as this congregation knows, it has a lot of things built into its policy that when you compare apples and apples, you need to make sure you're comparing apples and apples. If you take an alpha policy and compare it with a church insurance policy, you need to add about seven things to the alpha policy before they're comparable because they're automatically included in church insurance. What was your experience? Uh, lightning struck your air conditioning. That's equipment breakdown and it's covered under a policy by church insurance. It would not be covered necessarily under normal alpha policy. Those of you who serve on the vestry, employers and liabilities, uh, employers liability insurance um, included in a church insurance policy. And really you shouldn't be on a vestry unless a church has that kind of coverage because your personal assets are at risk if it can be proven that you as a vestry member made a bad employment decision. Live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, really. uh, so, uh, <laughs> I'm also greatly helped in this because the church insurance company pays for someone to come around and do risk management inspections of our properties. Her name is Catherine Tooker. She's a member of Grace Church in Anniston, and she will come around and do uh, a survey of your parish and tell you what she sees and what you might need to adjust. It's not quite like in business where that's tied to the policy. If you don't do what they say, then it's not quite church insurance has said, no, we're not going to see it that way because they know we'd all say don't come. But, um, but it's helpful, and, and she can do that for you. Maybe she has done it recently. Um, and it's important to do a couple of examples of things she's found. Um, in one place, um, they had an elaborate fire detection system in the sanctuary uh, to call the fire department if there were a fire when no one was there. Uh, a couple of years before, they had renovated the sanctuary during the renovation. They disconnected that system, of course. After the renovation, they put it back in, plugged it in, but nobody ever connected it to the phone lines. And so it was sitting there. With, <laughs> it would have never called anyone. Um, another place was interesting was rings on a swing set. Good, solid iron rings, but guess what? They were so good and solid, they'd been there for, I don't know, 40 years, and they were paper thin, where they actually, you know, just a few more times, and it would have sent the kid flying. So that's what she does. She comes and looks. But all these issues come up with risk management and the church. And, you know, one of the basic ideas that we need to keep in mind today is that where the church used to be sort of forgiven, by secular society and by the laws, that's no longer the case. We are held accountable just like any other organization. So if we fail as an employer, if we fail to provide workers' compensation, all these sorts of things, um, we're far more accountable to the secular society for than we've been in the past. And one of my jobs is to try over the last few years, and we've done it, to help congregations change in their mindset so they realize that they have to operate as a business, and they have to be knowledgeable. And with changing leadership, then, it's important that there be some place to where there's some consistency and you can look for answers, and, and we're that place. Um, I'm also the uh, administrator for our investments. I am aided by the trustees of the diocese in making investment decisions, and I'm very grateful for their assistance. I wouldn't want to be doing that myself. We have on that board often um, uh, some of the top investors in the city and in the diocese who advise us in our investments. We are assisted by Monroe Voss Consulting uh, in the person of Tim Callahan, who's a member of St. Luke's, uh, and they are our professional advisors. The custodian of the funds is Stern, A.G. and Leach. Um, we have right now 15400000 not really much money when it comes to investing when you're trying to diversify our portfolio. It's beginning to be enough to really get some diversification. But frankly, these days, it's not a tremendous amount of money, but it's, it's better. When I came on the staff, it was $2.5 million. 
so we certainly have uh, the ability to diversify, which is still considered to be the key to investing successfully. And these are not all diocesan funds. About 40% of them are. They are all designated. It's not just loose money that we can do whatever with. Most all of them are gifts that have come to us over the years with specific designations. Uh, one that comes to mind was um, uh, children between the ages of 14 and 21. You know, so they carry, they all carry designations like that. 60% um, of the funds, though, are funds from parishes and other organizations in the diocese that we co-mingle in order to have enough money to diversify the portfolio. If you have $50,000 and you're trying to invest it today, it's practically impossible to earn anything on that money. Um, CDs don't pay U.S. Treasuries. I think you have to pay them now to buy U.S. <laughs> treasuries. Um, so there are very few options. This fund is an option. You can place on deposit the money you want to invest. It benefits from the diversified portfolio and is also available to you. Requests up to $50,000 are paid from our operating funds. So we can, in other words, it's very liquid. We can give you some of your money back pretty quickly, say if you need, you know, we, oh gosh, we need 7000 for an air conditioner this week. We can do that and then we, on a slower rate, divest of the assessments to generate the cash and reimburse ourselves. So it's sort of like a money market in one way. You can get your money back in a limited way pretty quickly, um, but you also get the benefit of investing in stocks, which is so far has been a better return. Um, and you can always call us up and say, we want it back. Give us whatever it's worth right now, and we'll just give it back. It's a very informal arrangement. But anyway, that's one of the things we do, and that's that. The diocese is required to operate with um, cash reserves. It is required by uh, action of convention to have 7% of the prior year's budget in cash. And so that's why we have a good bit of money sitting around, frankly, as we're required to. Um, and it's helped us in the last couple of years when we ran deficits. Um, we didn't have to borrow. We didn't have to particularly worry about the deficit mid-year because we had these cash reserves to fund the deficit. Uh, and then there's some other things. We also operate a revolving loan fund. It's worth about 750000 now. And we make loans to parishes for small projects or to underwrite um, major construction. The loans are not um, legally binding. And therefore, um, uh, the parish can treat this as their own money. I mean, they can go to the bank and say, look, we got 50000 Well, that 50000 came from our loan. We want to get. And so it, it, it can also be used to leverage other funds. But for small projects, it's particularly helpful. And it's generally loaned at prime or below. And so usually the interest rate is better. Um, so we make that available. And actually, <laughs> um, we... <laughs> That's one of our best investments right now for the last two years because we have loans that go back several years and are being paid out. We actually are earning more money on the revolving loan fund. But all that stays in the revolving loan fund. It just goes right back into the fund. That's why it started out at 500,000 years ago and it just continually increases. So, um, and then we also have some funds left over from the Acts 2 campaign. We have some money for land purchase, for communications, and for Hispanic and minority ministries that um, are also invested or being held. Okay? okay. You can stop me with questions if you ever um, I, I also am the liaison for various departments, and those are a listing of the departments. That means mostly that I attend their meetings, that I help sort of staff their work. These are the committees of the diocese, and uh, folks on these committees are members of parishes from throughout the diocese, and they meet at different times. Um, uh, I don't know that I need to, but I think it's fairly, uh, kind of fairly obvious. I sort of function as comptroller, I guess would be the best term. It means that I'm also responsible for the day-to-day -day financial management. Um, the diocese itself has an operating budget of around two and a half million. Ninety-eight, I think, maybe. Ninety-seven percent of that is generated from contributions from parishes. 
We are one of, I think, only four dioceses in the church that are still funded by voluntary giving by parishes. Back in the 1980s, the Diocese of Alabama decided that the funding of the diocese should model good stewardship in a parish. Therefore, it should be based on proportional voluntary giving with guidance. That's the same standard, actually, that applies in the church for individuals. We give voluntarily. We're asked to give a proportion of our income, and the biblical guidance is 10%. So we fund the diocese the same way, through voluntary contributions of parishes with guidance, and the guidance that the, the convention has adopted in 2000 is 10% for parishes with annual income of 150000 or lower, and 15% for parishes of 150,000 and higher. Would it make more sense to have it 10% for all? Yes, if you honored your 10% at the pew level. But since you don't, there's not quite enough money for that kind of math to work out. Would it be theologically <coughs> marvelous if we could just say yes, that, that would be perfect. But it doesn't quite work out that way in terms of providing basically what's needed. Um, you know, several years ago, uh, actually during the Clinton administration, there was an extensive study done um, in the United States uh, to try to gauge what would happen if the federal government, and actually this study is kind of coming back in uh, to vogue, what would happen if the federal government got out of doing all the things it does to provide this sort of basket to catch people who are below the poverty level? And there was some enormous figure. It was, it was something like the church would need an additional $90 billion a year if it were to begin to meet those needs that the federal government pulled back. But then they, using statistics, looked at all the people in the United States who call themselves Christian, and they looked at their probable income and then figured out how much money would be generated if all those people tithed. And the truth is it was more than enough to do that and to do even more. Um, so I always remind myself of that when people want to argue that we worship a God of scarcity. Indeed, we uh, worship a God of abundance, um, but also a God who gives us the chance to decide where those funds are. So, um, so we are funded by voluntary contributions from the parishes uh, that are based on your voluntary proportional giving to your parishes. And I think that's an excellent way to do it um, and argue strongly that, um, that we're on the right track. Um, and, and every once in a while, somebody will come along and say, no, oh, we ought to just do assessments. Um, I always tell them, hey, we don't have a standing army. It's all voluntary. Why not, why not call it voluntary, you know? What, what really are we talking about here? Um, so that's some of what I do as comptroller. Um, one of the interesting things in this diocese, we're told that we actually have a fairly small staff for the size of the diocese. You know, there are 90 congregations, um, three college ministry centers, and um, it's, it's a fairly large congregation, uh, well, congregation or diocese as things go. Um, one of the things we do is most dioceses have what's called a canon to the ordinary. That is, a, a, he is the assistant to the bishop for ecclesial matters. I mean, he would deal with um, clergy issues and um, uh, deal with anything that a bishop would deal with, but sort of assist the bishop. We don't have that person. Instead, we divide that responsibility between the two senior staff members. And that, that's me and Sarah that I understand is coming to talk to you at some point. So that's an additional part of what I do. That just means that I participate in the general management and decision-making that's involved in the diocese. We have a staff meeting every Monday, and, and we spend time then not only with the nuts and bolts, but kind of dreaming and thinking and wondering, you know, and trying to deal with information as it comes in. So that's a, a called canon to the ordinary. That would be part of my function, although we don't carry that title. Years ago, the diocese decided it made more sense to have a second bishop than to have a canon to the ordinary, so that's what we, we do. I'm the office manager. Uh, we have a, a staff there at Carpenter House, and I'm responsible for 
changing light bulbs and managing the maintenance of the building. Uh, if the roof leaks, I'm the one. If the toilet stopped up, I'm the one. Um, but we also have property that we own in your name throughout the diocese, in fact. Uh, we have 11 acres in Chelsea, 9 acres in Springville, 2 acres in Union Springs. Um, that, that was interesting. We gave the church in Union Springs to the city. It was, um, the congregation was defunct. There had been several attempts to rebuild it just did not seem to work. The building was declining. They wanted it for a city theater, and um, it seemed to us that it was the right time to do that. Um, so we gave it to them, and in return, they were kind enough, kind enough to give us two acres with the idea that someday it might be a good time to rebuild. So we have two acres in Union Springs. I haven't seen it in a while. If you ever threw there, let me know. I'd take a look at it. <laughs> They're kind enough not to charge us property tax on that, which is nice, which they certainly could do. But, you know, churches pay property tax if there's not actually a church on the property. If it's not used for church purposes, we can be assessed property tax. And, and we do. We pay property tax on the Chelsea land. Um, well, that's it. That's the only one. That's the only one. Tends, it tends to be true that urban areas assess tax rural areas tend not to. It's up to the local tax assessor, but he's within his legal right. <clears throat> uh, so anyway, we have 10 acres in Tony. The Springville and Tony property are two purchases that we made from Acts 2 funds that were designated for land for future parishes. Um, interesting thing there, to try to say real quickly, one of the things we're wrestling with is, is our population and the dynamics that drive it are shifting tremendously. It used to be, five years ago, you could go out on an interstate, pick an exit, buy some land, and pretty soon you'd be sure that there'd be a subdivision out there. And when we raised the money for Acts 2, that was the model we expected to follow. We were going to try to get ahead of the expansion of urban areas by land before it was so expensive, and be ready to put parishes in when the people arrived. 2007-2008 came, and, and that's just simply no longer the case. Not only because of economics, but, but some of the urban planners um, tell us that they think the shift is permanent. Um, that we are returning to an urban-based society, meaning that people are moving back into the inner city, and indeed we do see this right now. Um, and that that sort of expansiveness will not be true. He says the areas that will continue to exist, like Springville, are, would have to be places that already have jobs, and there's a reason for being there, or they have excellent rail connections to the inner city. But this idea of commuting, he says, it's, it's not going to be true in the future. And it's not just this one person. It's an entire movement within urban planners that says this shift. So we... That's part of the reason we're still sitting on about $900,000 is we're not really too sure about how to spend that um, until we get a better feel for what, what this is going to mean. We are looking at some property in Gardendale. We think that's a pretty safe bet. But, but this idea of just going out on an exit and buying property, <clears throat> we're, um, we're very concerned about. So anyway, that's what we have. Yes, ma'am. You said that you're sitting on about $900,000. Is that part of the $15.4 million that you had in the... Some of it is. Okay. Yeah. They, um, you know, there's always the question of risk, uh, putting it in stock. So they put some of it. Some of it we haven't. Some of it is because we keep, like the Gardendale property, we've been chasing that for eight months now. And um, part of the problem is it went into foreclosure which is part of the reason it's affordable, but figuring out what it is we really are buying, and you know, it's amazing, the bank has, which bank is it? Oh, yeah, I know, y'all, none of, are you the all bankers? <laughs> <laughs> the bank doesn't know what they own. The guy in Mississippi who works for the bank has a piece of paper on his desk, and we know that it's, that things have happened that he doesn't know about. Uh, he doesn't know that a subdivision was put in on the land, uh, he thinks it's one piece of property, and, and he keeps saying, why don't you just buy it? And we keep saying, you don't know what's there. We do. And it, it's not, so we're trying to work out the legal stuff. But we think if we get it, it's a valuable piece of property. It would be great for a parish, or we think that we can sell it later on. But anyway, that's, 
So we kind of we've kept the money in cash too because we've we've been still sort of actively trying to to stumble onto places. I think probably this year that'll be one of the questions is do we want to invest this more long term? What do we really think is going to happen? Yeah, I'm sorry, and someone can correct me, but this church was sort of was more like an independent movement to kind of start in this area, and then it. The way we've done it in this church was part of this. The way we tended to do it is the diocese buys the land, and then the people build the building. And that's, that was true for Holy Apostles. We bought the property. One of the things that's true in this diocese, as you see there, is that we hold title to all the parish property in the diocese. It's all titled to um, the Episcopal Diocese, not to the bishop as in the Roman church, but to the Episcopal Diocese of Alabama. Um, this has been helpful, frankly, uh, in some of the current stresses within the church. We've had two congregations pull away from the diocese, both of them in Montgomery several years ago. Um, but the way we're set up, um, we've heard through uh, others associated with them is that they, they were pretty sure they would lose any attempt to take their property with them. Uh, it's, a, it's different than in other dioceses, particularly in Virginia, uh, there's a different structure, but here uh, it's all titled to the diocese, and it seems pretty clear um, that, that that the diocese owns the property. That seems to be a good thing to I do. I thought Virginia lost that lawsuit. They did. Uh, actually, in the last year or so, courts have <coughs> been favoring the national church. The argument that if the congregation participated previously and recognized its um, relationship with the diocese and therefore with the national church, they, they can't now say, oh no, that's not. Um, and so they did finally lose, lose that. Um, and that's happening in other places. Yeah, that's enough about that. So and there's the staff, 10 full-time, three working remotely, and then we have the chaplains who are in the college, which we're one of the few dioceses in the church that have this large chaplains program. Most dioceses have cut their chaplains programs in the last few years, um, but we have maintained ours, even strengthened it with Trinity Commons here in Birmingham and rebuilding the center in Montevallo. So uh, that's something that we're recognized for and you should be proud of is your support of college ministry. We think it's seed ministry. We, we know that that's where we get people in the future. Their first contact with the church is in college. And so it's important to maintain those outposts, so to speak. What's the property in, in Tallahassee? Yeah, Pond House is a retreat center that was given to the diocese in St. Peter's um, by Hugh Court and his wife. Uh, when they felt like they were too old to maintain the home, uh, they gave the home and the property to the diocese to operate as a retreat center. Um, it is available for vestry retreats, for individual retreats. It can accommodate, I think, eight or so people overnight. It's, it's just a very beautiful home on a small lake. It's within walking distance of what, um, not Lake Martin, but Logan Martin. Logan Martin, yeah, thank you, Logan Martin. Um, but there's a small pond there also, it's a pond house, and then quite a few acres for walking. Uh, it's really a nice, close-by sort of place to get away, um, something other than camp, and particularly good for day retreats. Um, I'm also the employee benefits manager for not only the Carpenter House, but for the parishes as well. And as you know, our new canons adopted about six years ago, but we're still getting used to them, requires parishes to provide employee benefits, medical and pension. For medical, is all employees working 1,500 or more hours annually, pension for 1,000 hours more annually or more annually. Um, so... Um, I'm sort of the in-between between the pension fund and the parish, although a lot of it goes directly from the pension fund to the parish. Um, by the way, the church pension fund, one of the largest and best funded um, uh, church pension funds in the nation, um, and also not too shabby in terms of the secular world. At the lowest point in the recession, um, our pension fund was funded at one in a nine, 109%. Um, it had been operating at 140%, um, but it's not 80, 70, and 60 as you hear in some of the public. Uh, that that it, there are this sufficient funds there actually apparently to provide the benefits that are promised. Um, 
some discussion of whether the assessment should be changed, but the drop there suggests that it shouldn't. And it, as it turns out, only about 40% of the benefits are provided from the assessment, that most of the benefits are actually paid from the return on investments. Um, they are particularly prideful, <laughs> and I think they should be, of the fact that in, uh, what was it, 2000, in the stock, uh, in the tech bubble, they got in and out at exactly the right moment. The pension fund actually realized a billion dollars in returns in one year based on their investment in tech stocks. Thanks be to God. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and they're using that excess now to provide medical benefits for retired clergy. And, um, and, and let me say just real quickly, this is, this is, the pension fund is important to parishes. It's great for clergy. The, the reason it's important is it was started by people like J.P. Morgan in the early 20th century. And it was because he saw parishes straddled with tremendous burdens when dear old father so-and-so would finally retire and had no pension, no support. And so the parish from which they retired would feel like, well, we got to, you know. And, and he said, this, this is crazy. We, we need to do this differently. And, and he established the church pension fund. And today it does that. When you have a cleric retired, or when you, you should feel good. You've provided for that cleric. There's really no reason to provide something more. Um, and today, because of that surplus, um, you, we actually have um, Medicare supplement insurance with prescription benefits at no cost. Um, now, we don't know that's not a guaranteed benefit. We don't know how long that will last. But for now, they've been able to hold that even through the recession. Um, in addition to being able to expect, if you have 20 years or more, you can expect to retire with about 50% of your highest average compensation. So it's a good thing. Parishes should feel great about um, folks retiring. You've done what you need to do. Okay, so, yeah, I'm almost through. Um, so 10 things that I, I thought, well, what are 10 things that we do? Um, one, we can give you assistance with your investments. You can choose to pool funds with the pooled investment fund that I mentioned, that 15 million. And it doesn't have to be <coughs> 10,000, fine. 5,000 really is okay. Um, if you've got some money you want to park with us, um, that's, that's great. We'll be glad to invest it for you. Um, and these days, that's, that's pretty important. From the parish level. Yeah, from the, yeah, from the parish level. Obviously, there's some risk. Uh, it's, it's about, right now, the asset ratio is about 50% stock uh, bonds and 50% stocks. It's conservatively um, invested. It doesn't do as well. You're going to hear S&P and the stock funds. If you had pure stocks, um, you did very well this past year, maybe up around 11 12%. This fund is not going to do that well because it's diversified in bonds as well, um, which used to be considered <laughs> relatively safe. Um, so anyway, but the return is good. Uh, we help you with employee benefits. Are there, quick question on the investment uh, assistance. Are there any fees that the parish pays for that? Only the, uh, it's about 1%. And it's the brokerage fees and the investment council. But we don't impose any fees. Our, our accounting and management is, is, there's no charge for that. We don't put on an extra fee. So, so if you've got funds that are invested, it, it, it'll be probably maybe less than what you're paying, but probably comparable to what you're paying. So it runs about 1% annually. It's a little bit higher than we wish, but it's still a relatively small fund. Some people would argue it's overmanaged. I don't think so. When you're holding other people's money, it's important to have the investment council that we have. And, and they're not cheap. They're not that expensive, but they're not cheap. Um, employee benefits, of course, we help uh, with all of that. Um, we help with legal advice. I hope you always feel like as, as you move into leadership roles that you can call and ask for advice and guidance, particularly in understanding nonprofit status. A lot of people have done dawn on them, but Episcopal congregations don't have to apply for 501c3 status. It's conferred automatically through a national group exemption. Um, you know who wrote the tax code back in the early 20th century? Well, one of the fellows was J.P. Morgan. Mm -hmm. He took care of us. 
Um, group exemptions exist for other organizations too, but they're very limited and they're rare today. But we have a group exemption, so all you have to do is so, show that you're associated with the diocese and you have your exemption. Um, nothing more you have to do. You don't have to file 940s um, because you're a church organization. Um, but uh, while I'm on the topic, as I mentioned, you can be liable for property tax. And churches in Alabama do pay sales tax, although most people don't understand that. Churches are not exempt from sales tax in the state of Alabama. It seems odd in the Bible Belt, but that, that's the way it is. Um, I figure we expect the police and firemen to come, and we want a voice at the table on education, so we ought to pay sales tax. That's kind of how I work it out in my head. We can offer fundraising and stewardship guidance, website. Um, we operate... A, a website community into which a, a parish can, uh, they, you can host, let us host your website and uh, it's free. And you have a lot of control over how it looks, you post to it, you have the passwords, it's your website, but it's hosted in what's called the digital faith community and you have no hosting fees. I, I'm not sure if Holy Apostles is one of our, you are? Okay, so you know about that. Easter Fund. Uh, is an annual appeal directly to parishioners, and it, its money is used to support pastoral care for clergy, but also for new congregations and work uh, on, in colleges and youth. And parishes can apply for small um, grants from that Easter fund. Sometimes it's been used, say, to, to help get a parish into a youth minister's position or something like that. Risk management inspections, already mentioned, workers' compensation insurance. We do that through a group policy, which provides um, discounts um, that would not be available to parishes individually and also spreads the risk uh, around a larger group. Um, uh, accounting support, we're always glad to help. I'm not an accountant, and I, I don't know all the ins and outs, but we certainly can help with software and other recommendations, and then Jan, our bookkeeper, can also help with the county questions and things like that. We're always glad to help. We like ACS very much as software goes um, and are investing quite a bit in, in using ACS on the diocesan level, although we don't use it for accounting because years and years ago the accounting system at the diocese was established by a retired Army Finance General. And we still do accounting like the Army did. I don't know if they still do. It's a really kind of complicated but interesting system. Um, and so, so we have to use, we use um, Solomon or what are they called, Microsoft Dynamics now um, for the accounting. ACS can't handle the way our books are set up. Is that established under Ed Freeland? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've heard really good things about ACS as well at yeah. the parish level. And uh, any thought of DOSIS and assistance for parishes <laughs> using ACS? No. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, other than there is a growing informal community of people in the diocese who are familiar with ACS. There are three people now on the diocese and staff who are trained. And in Crete, All Saints here in town uses it. Um, we use it. You, you use are you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. The cathedral does. Trinity Clanton is probably the smallest congregation that uses it. We like it. But one of the things we like about it, and I, I, I've enjoyed it, is we use it in the cloud. It's our first experience we of computing in the cloud. So we, on we demand. Do, yeah, yeah. We do it on the cloud. One of their favorite selling points is that after Katrina, one of the early versions of ACS, some of the parishes out there had it on demand, using it in the cloud. And though their building was swept away, you know, some of them, you couldn't even tell where the building had been, from wherever they scattered, they could log into ACS, and there was their membership, there were their financial records. Um, you can even upload legal documents into ACS and store them there. Yes. It's, um, it's really quite, quite a system. It's the one system that's been chosen by the Episcopal Church Center to um, have one button preparation of the parochial report. That if you use the membership and the financial side, there's one, literally one button you push at the end of the year and it will prepare the report that matches the Episcopal parochial report. But it's complicated. It's tough to learn. There is a learning curve, so you have to. But because um, there are five ways to do everything, it's not sense. that bad. They've okay. simplified it over time. I it, think. It's, you should yes. watch what you say. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Absolutely. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 